You can play while I speak. <laughs> Let's pray. We need to hear from You, Heavenly Father. Not me. And so, um, please make Your Word very clear right now. And um, please shepherd us. And uh, guide us. I pray, Father, that uh, You would be our joy inside. Um, That You would help us conquer sin, things that we're struggling with in our life, and then have a real boldness to live for You. We love You so much, Father. We depend on You right now. In Your name, Amen. Well, good morning. Thank you for saying that back. That helps me. Well, this morning we're going to talk about a topic that most of us want, um, but we don't necessarily always have a lot of, and that is joy. Which makes sense because we're in the Christmas season and Jesus is the reason for the season. He is joy. So it makes sense. Everywhere we look, we see the word joy. When I was going through Safeway, I saw joy on everything that I was looking at. When I was unpacking all of the stuff at, at home and we're decorating, we have this little Santa Claus that's holding um, this sign. And then it's supposed to say joy, but the O was missing out of the middle. And I thought, ha ha! You don't have the joy, Santa. Jesus has the joy. So, the waters get a little bit muddy, though, um, when, we, when we think about what exactly joy is, because we see it everywhere. The world has a definition of joy, and then the Bible has a definition of joy that's a lot different. Jesus can say to us things like He does in James chapter 1, verse 2, When he says, consider it pure joy, my brothers, when you're faced with trials of various kinds. Or the Apostle Paul, when he describes the Christian faith and the walk as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. It's a big difference between the world's joy and the joy of knowing Christ. I was looking at this article by David Murray. He's a Um, professor at Reformed Theological Seminary. And it says this, What's the difference between Christian joy and the joy of the world? How do I know how I have the former and not the latter? The Puritan Thomas Watson outlined eight important differences summarized below. Number one, spiritual joys help to make us better. Worldly joys often make us worse. Christian joy cleanses our hearts, turns us against sin, and infuses strength to do and to suffer. Number two, spiritual joys are inward. They are heart joys. Worldly joy is superficial, lying on the outside like the dew on a leaf. But spiritual joy lies most within. Divine joy is like a spring of water which runs underground. Number three, spiritual joys are sweeter than others. They are better than wine. They're so sweet. That's how you know he's a reformer. He said wine. They are so sweet that they make everything else sweet 
and also give us a distaste for earthly delights. Number four, spiritual joys are pure. They're not tempered with any bitter ingredients. A sinner's joy is mixed with the dregs and fear and guilt. Spiritual joy is not muddied with guilt, but like a crystal stream, runs pure. It is joy and nothing but joy. Number five, they're satisfying joys. There is as much difference between spiritual joys and earthly joys as between a banquet that is eaten and one that is painted on the wall. Number six, there are stronger joys than worldly joys. They're strong enough to bear up a Christian's heart in the heaviest affliction. Number seven, there are unwearied joys. Unlike other joys, the joys of God, though they satisfy, yet they never sicken us. A drop of joy is sweet, but the more of this wine, the better. Number eight, there are abiding joys. Worldly joys are soon gone. They seem to be sweet, but they're swift. The joys which believers have are abiding. And then he finishes with Psalm 94:19. In the multitude of my anxieties within me, your comforts delight my soul. It's powerful. Christian joy is different than the world's joy. There are similarities in the sense that they both have happiness. They both have things that we like for a moment, but the Christian joy runs so much deeper. That's good news for us this morning. Joy in Christ is available to us right now. In the midst of everything that you're going through, and His joy will sustain you all the way to the end of life here on this earth. God zealously desires to give us joy in the midst of darkness through Jesus Christ. If you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to Isaiah chapter 8? We're going to start with verse 11. We're going to read all the way through chapter 9, verse 7. For the Lord spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me and warned me not to walk in the way of his people, saying, Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. And he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. Bind up the testimony. Seal the teaching among my disciples. I'll wait for the Lord who is hiding His face from the house of Jacob. And I will hope in Him. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs importance in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. And when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living to teach and to the testimony? If they'll not speak according to this word, it is because 
they have no dawn. They will pass through the land, greatly distressed and hungry. And when they're hungry, they'll be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. And they will look to the earth, but distress, and but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought in contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad that they divide when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor you have broken is on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. And in my favorite sentence, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Amen. That is the Word of God. You know, when I was preparing this, I was reading through the epistles, looked through some of the Gospels, and just searching, well, what are we going to do? Joy. Joy is everywhere. <laughs> and I went into Isaiah, and I got to this passage, it's like this beam of light came, not, not literally, but there's like a beam of light coming down. This is it. This is the one. And I got super excited because I see three different sections in our passage that we just looked at. The first, the first section shows a picture of great darkness. The second section pictures the joy that comes when the darkness is lifted. And the third section reveals the source of the joy. So let's begin with the look at this, this darkness. The darkness that the people are in. And, and as we're looking at it, you can think of it metaphorically as, as some of the weight maybe that you're feeling in your own life. Sin, uh, just hard times, things that, that you're going through. So back at, at this time, we have a wonderful map here presented by, by Brad of the area of, of Israel and Judah. It's a divided kingdom at this time. And you, you see that all the different regions up there are, are named um, by the 12 tribes. There's some extra names up there also. But there's a divided kingdom at this time. There's Israel on the north, Judah on the bottom. They don't even like each other. And they have totally turned against God during this time. They have idols. They're worshiping um, all sorts of things. We saw that when we looked at uh, chapter 8. Um, they were seeking mediums and necromancers. They were looking for uh, insight into the future through the dead instead of the living God. And God had turned their face from them. He says in there that they had no dawn. 
You get that picture? They didn't even have a glimpse of light. Dawn. It isn't like two or three o'clock in the afternoon. No light. They're losers. Blackness. Nothing. God had turned His face against them. And He allowed other nations to come in and take over and exile them. In fact, Israel um, was attacking Judah at this time, just, just before our passage. They came down into Judah to attack them, and King Ahaz, who's the king of Judah at the time, an evil guy, it says in Second Kings chapter 16, he did evil in the sight of the Lord. In fact, he, he erected an altar to the king of Moloch, um, Canaanite god, and they performed infant sacrifices on it. It says that King Ahaz even burned his own kid on that altar. So this evil king is being attacked by Israel, and he's like, I need help. And so he seeks help from Tiglath-Pilzer, Pilzer, something like that. He's the king of Assyria. And you know what he does? King Ahaz goes into the temple of the Lord, which they hadn't been using for a long time, stripped of it, all its gold and its silver and everything precious inside the temple, sent it up there to the king and said, please come and help us. So he said, okay, we will. And he came and invaded the northern part, the northern kingdom of Israel in the area of Naphtali and Zebulun is what it says. And if you look around there, the Sea of Galilee, that's right next to it. Okay? So we're way up there up north. And they came down there and they exiled a lot of um, the people. So there's a bunch of turmoil going on. I just picture darkness. Families being ripped apart from one another. Just no light, no hope. But there's always a remnant. And that's why Isaiah is talking to these people because God told him, give my people hope. Speak this word. In this area, in this region of Naphtali and Zebulon, it's a fertile region. Um, it's been an area that has been attacked and overrun. Alexander the Great came romping through there. Um, not only because they wanted to be there, but also because it's at the northern end of the kingdom. And so in order to get to the middle of it, they need to go through there. So it's a mixture of people, a mixture of idols, a mixture of Jews and Gentiles. But of course, God didn't leave His people in darkness. He brought them the prophet Isaiah and He prophesied that light would show through darkness. And that there would be a time coming where there would be rejoicing. He gave great cause for His people to rejoice in the hope of His prophecy. He said, But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, He brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, He has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor you have broken is on the day of Midian. The people are going to see a day where there's going to be rejoicing like at the time of harvest. We think of all the work that goes on all year long. They're waiting for that anticipated time and then there's harvest. They get all the food and then they have full bellies. 
This is in great contrast to what we just read in chapter 8 when it said they're going to be searching and they're going to be hungry because they're in darkness. And now we see that there's going to be joy like at a time in harvest when they're going to be full. There's also going to be joy like a joy that comes when they're dividing a spoil. We think of a great victory. That's when you divide the spoil. When there's been victory over what? Darkness. That's the context. It's a spiritual context. Okay, this is a, this is a believer's joy that we're talking about here. There's going to be victory. There's going to be light out of darkness. And verse 4 continues with this picture of a conquering, saying, For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor you have broken is on the day of Midian. You know what that's in reference to? You think about it, Midian and Gideon. Gideon was in Midian, or not in Midian, but he was having problems with Midianites. I don't know. Sometimes I wonder if God does this on purpose to make us laugh a little bit. But uh, So, the Midianites and the Amalekites outnumbered all the Israelites. And we can read about this in Judges chapter 6. And so, Israel, once again, just like the time of Isaiah, had turned their backs against God. And they're living in darkness for like seven years. Until the people eventually, they're so afraid of these guys. These guys kept coming into their land. They're outnumbered by them. And these guys would come in and take all their food. And they were afraid of them and they would retreat and, and just try to run away. And so they finally cried out to the Lord. And the Lord heard them. And He decided to deliver them. And He was going to use Gideon to deliver them. And He sent him an angel of the Lord while, he was, while Gideon was threshing out the wheat in a wine press. That doesn't go together. You don't usually thresh wheat. I've never threshed wheat before and I've never made any wine. But I don't think wheat it goes in a wine press. But he was threshing out the wheat in a wine press because he's trying to hide. He doesn't want people to know what's going on. He doesn't want the bad guys to come and take all his food away. So he's in the middle of hiding. He's in the wine press. He's threshing out the wheat. And an angel of the Lord appears and he says, Greetings, great warrior. God has chosen you to deliver Israel to be the Savior. And the story goes on for a little while. Gideon um, didn't just not believe the angel, but he wanted to make sure this was really the Lord telling him it. And so he, he checked to do it. He did a few different things to make sure it was the Lord talking to him. And sure enough, he decided, this is the Lord that is talking to me. And so Gideon goes and he musters together 32,000 soldiers to go up and fight against the Malachites and the Midianites who scholars think was roughly around 100,000. Still not, not very good odds if you're just looking at numbers, but God said, Gideon, 32,000 is too many. If you guys win the battle with 32,000 soldiers, then the people might start to think maybe they just did a really good job at fighting and they need to know, I'm the one who will bring them out of darkness, not you. And so eventually, he dwindled down the army to 300 soldiers. And so those 300 soldiers, along with Gideon, took their trumpet and their torches in a jar. And I don't know exactly how that looked, but they all walked together and they went around the encampment of their enemy. And all at once together, they blew their horns and they shouted for the Lord and for Gideon. And immediately the Midianites and the Amalekites, they went 
They scattered. And the 300 uh, warriors went after them and they took them over. And they had victory. Do you believe that? That's amazing. So God is speaking to these people, the Israelites, at the time of Isaiah, who are also now in a lot of darkness. And He's telling them, I know you're looking around and there's darkness and you're going through hell on earth right now. Things are, things are going terrible. But there's going to be a day of rejoicing when I'm going to lift the darkness. Like in a harvest time. Like when you're dividing the spoil. Like on the day of Midian. I will bring you light in an unexpected and miraculous way just like when I freed you from the Midianites. And this is going to be great cause for you to rejoice. But the question, of course, is how? How is God going to do this? The answer is in verse 6. All arrows in the Bible point to our verse 6. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. That word for is really important in our passage right there. You will be delivered from darkness and you are going to rejoice for because a child is born. A son has been given. Jesus is the reason for the season. He's the source of the joy. Only He is going to be the one that is able to lift the darkness. But you may ask and wonder, how do we know that it's talking about Jesus in verse 6? We could say, well, we do know that Jesus was born to the Virgin Mary so as a child. And we know that if we read on in, in the verse, those attributes, the names that it gives the Lord are also coincide with who Jesus was. But we also know that verse 6 is talking about Jesus because the Bible tells us that it's Jesus that it's talking about. We can turn to Matthew chapter 4. Let's read verses 12 through 16. Now when he, speaking of Jesus, heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee, and leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum. Okay? That's what it's called at the time of Jesus, not no longer Zebulun and Naphtali. Okay? And lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. So in chapter 8 in Isaiah, they have no dawn. Now the light has dawned because Jesus is going there to spread the Gospel. These verses were great hope for the remnant of God's people at the time of Isaiah. It's super important to meditate though on verse 6. One of the things I love about getting an opportunity to study some of these passages 
is that I have to think about it a lot more and dig in a little bit deeper and ask the question like, why, why, does it, why does it say to us a child is born and a son is given? Why doesn't it just say one or the other? The reason is, is because Jesus is both man and God. He's a child, 100% man, and he's the son of God, so he's 100% God. And it's capturing it all right there in verse 6. It's a huge gold nugget that, that we should be looking at. Because the only way that God can satisfy His wrath against the darkness of their sin and our sin is if He is both man and God. For our sake, He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. We needed both. And as we continue reading in this verse, we see Jesus is a wonderful Counselor, a mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. He's a wonderful Counselor. There is no one, there's different people in here that are hurting in different ways, there's no one that knows what you're feeling and experience what you're feeling like Jesus. Jesus knows exactly how you're feeling. He experienced all of it on the cross. He's wonderful. He's a wonderful counselor. And the counsel that He has for us in Scripture is perfect because He's God. Look at this encouraging promise Jesus left His disciples. John 14.26 But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in My name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. We have the Holy Spirit with us to give us counsel and guidance through everything that we experience and go through. Jesus is also a mighty God. He has the power to carry out what He says is going to happen here. We've seen it. We've witnessed it ourselves. Colossians chapter 1, verses 15-20 through 20 talks about the preeminence of Christ. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions, or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. He's also our everlasting Father. We know this verse, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believed in Him will not perish but have everlasting life. And He's the Prince of Peace. Let's add a couple verses onto the John 14 section we did. Starting with verse 26. 
But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I'm going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced. Because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. If you want true, internal, and eternal peace, you can only find it in Jesus. All these things are available through Christ right now. If you don't know Jesus, you can know Him now. If you know Jesus, but you're going through a hard time and, and, and you're struggling with different things, let these words be an encouragement. I need, I need them. When I'm going through, like, this is great. <laughs> this is good. This is good news. I need this. I need to hear this over and over again every day. Think about this again. So Isaiah... It's prophesying this message to the people 700 years before the prophecy came to, came to fruition. So these people are living in darkness. They're hurting. And they want help now. <laughs> and God says, I'm going to give them help right now. You're going to tell them this. Did God's Word fail? Those people? They weren't alive to see Jesus born. No. His words heal. His words give hope. His words give us joy in the midst of everything. And just like they waited for that hope that was to come and the light that was going to come in the darkness, and how is God going to do all of this? We're waiting for a second advent. Just like those people, we're waiting for that day when we're with the Lord and He's established His kingdom forever and there's everlasting peace. Look at verse 7. Of the increase of His government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over His kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice, with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The, the government is going to rest on Jesus' shoulders forevermore. I kept thinking of the sandlot when I kept looking at it. Forever! <laughs> it's going to be forever. We're going to be with Jesus. That is a cause for us to fight. In the midst of external darkness that's happening all around us and our internal struggles that we're having. Our God is a miraculous God that sends people like Gideon to free. He can do anything and everything. We just need to trust Him in His Word and fight for this. And I want to close this morning with a really powerful story. It's of a story that happened just a few years ago. So it happened with people that are experiencing all the world events that you and I are experiencing, except for they experience them in just a little bit harder light, I think, because they are in Iran. They were in Iran. Now they're not. I found this story in an article from Voice of the Martyrs. 
And I don't want to read its entirety because you, you would have a fit if I did, because it's a long one. I am going to read quite a bit of it, but it's so powerful. It's of a family. The, the dad's name is um, Ali. The wife's name is Soro. They have two kids. One's a five-year-old and one's a seven-year-old. And Soro said um, at the beginning of the article that it was a joy and privilege for them to minister in Iran, even amongst all the threat that was laid before them. They also wrestled inside with what could happen to their kids if they continued their ministry. But they had the conviction from the Holy Spirit that if God was calling them, He was calling their whole family to this ministry. And so they trusted in the Lord. Listen to this quote. If we are one, Soro said, He called our kids, He called our family, and the Lord knew what He was doing with our kids. So they lived in Iran and they had a house church and it describes kind of their uh, what it looked like when they would hold their church service. They would have a lookout outside, a special secret knock at the door. They would let the people in. They would close the blinds on the house. They would have to not be too loud while they're in there worshiping. They would uh, cover up the, the seam of the door on the bottom not to let out too much light or, or too much sound. And that's how they would meet. And they knew that it was likely one of the days that they're going to get arrested. Someone's going to come bursting through their door and, and they'll be arrested for what they're doing. And that day came. Sora was uh, doing the dishes. Um, they came bursting in through her door. Her kids were there with her. They arrested her. We don't know where the kids went during this time. It doesn't say. She was just thankful that her husband wasn't there. But as they're taking her out to the car, her husband comes walking up. And they arrest him as well. And this is where I want to pick up the story. After almost two weeks in prison, a guard walked into Soros' cell and announced that she was being released. He led her down a long corridor and through a large door, and suddenly she was standing alone on the sidewalk in the bright sunshine, wondering about her husband. Soros was overjoyed to be back home with her family, but she was still reeling from her imprisonment. She refused to leave her boys, sleeping between them their beds at each night. And none of them knew where or if Ali would come home. She'd recognized the presence of evil in her interrogators, but she also came to understand that their entire experience was ordained by God. He was allowing us, His children, to suffer because He wanted us to carry His presence into their presence. Soro said. He loved them so much, the judges, the interrogators, the guards, that He allowed us to go through a really, really hard time to carry His presence into their presence so they could come in touch with Him. Finally, after more than a month of waiting, Soro got the call she had been hoping for. Ali was coming home. Although Soro and Ali were out on bail, they faced the possibility of re-imprisonment at the conclusion of their trial. They had been charged with disrupting national security and apostasy from Islam. Soro and Ali lived in constant fear, enduring continuous surveillance. Watchers positioned themselves outside the home, even followed Soro when she left to buy groceries. Many Iranian Christians chose to leave the country after facing imprisonment, surveillance, social pressure, limited economic opportunities, and the threat of a longer prison sentence. 
But Sorrow and Ali felt the Lord was telling them to stay. We knew we had to help the church learn how to walk through persecution. Sorrow said, If we just fled, anybody after us would follow our example. The fear gradually subsided after about four months, and Ali um, again began to gather people for teaching and worship. Although they were still closely watched, people were coming to faith. Sorrow said it was by God's grace that they were not discovered. Despite the stress, she took joy in watching young Iranian believers grow strong in faith and even share with others. For the next two years, Sorrow and Ali continued to invest in each, each new believer, teaching them God's Word and preparing them to stand firm under persecution. Meanwhile, every two months, they were required to attend court hearings, one in the Islamic Revolutionary Court and one in the lower court for apostasy from Islam. The trials dragged on, exhausting the entire family. For each hearing, the couple had to leave their children, who were still sensitive to their parents' absence due to imprisonment, with relatives and travel to court, where Sorrow was required to wear a full black covering. They then passed through court security only to wait for hours in a crowded courthouse for a judge who allowed them to speak for less than two minutes at a time. Sora was, uh, was disappointed that she had never been able to testify about Jesus during a court hearing. So she asked the Lord for the chance. Is that what you would be concerned about? One day... She arrived at the court alone, and the normally crowded halls were empty. She began to tremble as she sensed the Holy Spirit saying, This is the day. And to her great joy, the judge agreed to let her speak. Sorrow began by explaining the creation and the fall of man, then moved through the Old, whole Old Testament, all, all the Old Testament stories showing how God used each event to point towards something yet to come. She spoke, get this, for 45 minutes. This is in Iran. I'm thinking of Stephen before the Sanhedrin. She spoke for 45 minutes, finishing by describing Jesus as the sacrificial Lamb of God. That was God's provision for our sins, she told the judge. Jesus died on the cross and He rose from the dead. People came and went from the courtroom as Soros spoke. When the judge's secretary came in, he told her to sit and listen. Then a judge with a prisoner entered the room and stayed. Others arrived with paperwork for the judge, but he merely signed the papers in motion for Sorrow to continue her speech. When she had finished, the judge said, You know, we Muslims can't be perfect all the time. I know, Sorrow replied, neither can I. That's why we need a Savior, a sacrifice for our sins. Sorrel ended the conversation by praying for the judge and left the courtroom with a lighter spirit even though she could not know how their case would be resolved. It felt so good to pray in Jesus' name for this man, she said. After working with Iranian believers for several more months, Sorrel and Ali decided it was time to leave the country and continue their work with Iranian Christians elsewhere. Today, they live in a nearby country where they train leaders to plant new churches throughout Iran. 
Soros said, Iranian believers have become very bold, furiously meeting and reaching out to their Muslim neighbors. We help them catch a vision about reproducing, Soros said, and what it means to listen to God and be on the, on the alert for the people he has prepared. I think this is really important what she says here. While Soros said she does not miss living under the pressure they faced in Iran, she does miss the complete dependence on the Holy Spirit and sensitivity to His leading that it required. In safer countries such as the U.S. and the country where Soros and Ali now live, believers do not have to be careful when they share the Gospel because there is little risk. We respond more to the beeps on our phone, I find, than the Holy Spirit, Soros said. She said it's important during our busy schedules to consider each day what God wants us to do and with whom He wants us to speak. Are our ears tuned to the Holy Spirit's leading? She asked. You really have to be close to Him. You really have to listen and can't go on with all your plans. Sora and Ali's boys, now teenagers, have not expressed much about the experience of their parents' imprisonment, but Sora knows God is at work in them. I'm waiting for the time, Sora said, when they begin to see the richness that came out of that and make those connections of, wow, God let me, let me through, go through this that He had a purpose for me, not just for my parents. I think she probably knew what it was like to say, the joy of the Lord is my strength. The sentence that I love the most in the passages that we read this morning is the very last one in verse 7. It says, The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. God enthusiastically seeks salvation in us with zeal. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 says, Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. That's something good to meditate on as, as we take communion. Thus, come forward.